And the gospel reading comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 47. And please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. From Luke, chapter 22, beginning at verse 39, we read in Jesus' name. And he, that is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus and kissed him. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that I like about our liturgy, uh, particularly the liturgy that we use consistently on Sunday mornings, that's what I'm talking about here, is that it's a great way to teach our children uh, the core tenets of the Christian faith even before they know what they mean and before they know how to read. Uh, Children who grow up coming to church, they learn three things especially. They learn the confession of sin at a young age, they learn the Apostles' Creed at a very young age, and they learn the Lord's Prayer at a very young age. Before they even know what these things mean, they learn them so that when they start to understand what they mean, they have those words written on the wrinkles of their brain. And it's a great way uh, to begin teaching them the Christian faith. However, with, with one of these things, and that's the Lord's Prayer, um, it's kind of funny and a little bit unfortunate, I suppose, that they almost always learn it wrong. (laughs) That's because they don't have the word thy in their vocabulary. So many times, I have heard children substitute the word that they do know into that spot, and perhaps you've heard them say the same thing. Hallowed be my name, my kingdom come, and my will be done. Perhaps you've heard them say that. I've heard it several times. Now, it's, it's kind of humorous and mostly innocent because they don't know that they're praying it completely wrong, and they're really just trying to keep up with the rest of us, which is good, right? And they'll learn eventually that there is a word in the English language, thy, and this is the one place where we use it. <laughs> Ironically... Those children are praying the way that we all want to pray. Last week I made the point that in our sinful flesh, we do not want the things we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us what God desires for us, but we want the exact opposite. 
If we were allowed to pray for all the things we want, we would pray for all of the opposite things with every single one of the seven petitions. Instead of praying that our Father's name would be hallowed, we would pray for our own fame. We would pray that our names would be respected and honored. Instead of the coming of his kingdom, we would pray that others would look to us for leadership and that we might rule over them, whether that be one person or three people or ten or a hundred or a million, whatever it might be. And instead of our Father's will, we desire that our own wills would be done. After all, that's exactly what it means to have a will. And instead of boring old daily bread, we would ask for a lifetime supply of decadent feasts. And we don't really even want our sins to be forgiven. And this might be the one that sounds the weirdest, but it's true. I'll explain it. We really don't want our sins to be forgiven because that implies that we are actually wrong. This is why it's hard to say, I'm sorry, or I was wrong, or even please forgive me. It's why apologies often go like this, I'm sorry if I offended you. That way you don't have to admit guilt. And so we really don't want our sins to be forgiven. We would much prefer that they be forgotten or ignored or or better yet affirmed we really love our culture of affirmation and we're not talking about all those pop culture sins that we look down on celebrities for or whatever i'm talking about our sins in our own lives i mean think about when you have a fight with your spouse or your parents or a friend or a teacher or your boss or whoever we might have a dispute with. We crave that friend who will affirm us and tell us that we are in the right and the other person is wrong. We crave that affirmation because it excuses our sins. And instead of being led away from temptation, we would much rather give in to it but simply spare any painful consequences. We would like to remain in our evil without having anything unpleasant happen to us. By our very nature, we hate everything in the Lord's Prayer. Left to our own sinful flesh, we would pray for all the wrong things. And really, the worst thing that could happen then is that God would give us everything we ask for, and it would destroy us. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer so that we can pray for the things that God desires, so that we might receive those things and be saved. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray against ourselves. And this is incredibly gracious. Nowhere is this more obvious than in the second and third petitions. Your kingdom come and your will be done. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray against the illusion of our own autonomy. I call it an illusion because we are never really autonomous. The devil is happy to let us believe we are the masters of our own destiny if it really means that we remain in his dominion of darkness. The coming of God's kingdom isn't really a threat to our freedom because we don't have any freedom. It is only perceived. 
And our perception of our own freedom is merely a province in the kingdom of Satan, to whom we must pay tribute. And so when the kingdom of God comes to lay claim to us, it's not a violent conquest. It's a rescue. It's also not the sort of thing where we give ourselves up freely to the kingdom of God. God takes us by force from the devil. And then being subject to him in his kingdom, that is true freedom. It's not autonomy. We never become autonomous. Autonomy means that we govern ourselves. And so it's not autonomy, but it's freedom, true freedom from sin, death, and the devil. Instead of being subject to all the things that would destroy us, we become subject to the God who adopts us as his own children, makes us his heirs, and gives us forgiveness, life, and eternal salvation. And this is what we pray for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. There are three forms that the kingdom of God takes. Theologians have identified them. Three forms. They call them the kingdom of power, the kingdom of grace, and the kingdom of glory. First, the kingdom of power. That's God's sovereign and powerful rule over all of creation. And this includes all the kingdoms of this world, our families, every legitimate authority, and even the physical world itself, like animals and the weather. We see much evil in God's kingdom of power. Not that it comes from God, but we see it existing in his kingdom. But God sets limits to the evil. The evil doesn't come from him, but it comes from us. And that is why God allows it to continue in the kingdom of power. He's not patient with evil, but he's patient with you and me and with all of our neighbors because he desires that we would all come to repentance. And this is why he allows evil to still exist, but in his kingdom of power, he sets limits to it. And so we're encouraged to remember that God is king, sovereign over all creation. This kingdom of God's power, along with God's patience, allows his kingdom of grace to exist and grow uh, in this world. The kingdom of grace, this is the second form of his kingdom, that's the church, which finds its life in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This church is built and sustained by the work of the Holy Spirit, and God's primary activity in this kingdom of grace is to forgive sins. And these, two, these first two kingdoms, they exist side by side in this world. And we often refer to them as God's left and right hand kingdoms because they are both God's kingdoms, but he rules them in different ways. He rules the kingdom of power through his law while he rules over the kingdom of grace through his gospel. And these two kingdoms, they exist side by side within the same created world until Christ's kingdom of glory appears. And that's the third one. Kingdom of power, kingdom of grace, and finally, kingdom of glory. And this will be the end of the distinction between kingdoms. Christ will return. He will raise the dead. He will transform his believing saints. He will judge all mankind, and he will take his believing saints into his eternal kingdom. 
the kingdom that he has prepared for us. And there he will rule in power and in grace with no tension between the two. And there will be no tension there because no longer will there be anything evil. And so these three kingdoms, these are the three forms of God's kingdom. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for all three of them. We are praying that God would give civil justice on earth and peace and that he would limit evil. We're praying for the kingdom of grace, that he would forgive our sins and the sins of all believers and draw more people into this kingdom. And also that the Holy Spirit would preserve us together in this faith. And that's all in the kingdom of grace. And then for the kingdom of glory, we are also praying that Christ would come quickly to take us into his eternal kingdom. We pray for all of this in the second petition. The third petition is somewhat similar. We pray that our Father's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is, of course, similar to the second petition because it is by God's kingly authority that he accomplishes his will. But here we see most clearly that we are praying against ourselves. The doing of God's will especially excludes the doing of our wills. And so we see Jesus in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, even Jesus praying, not my will, but yours be done. Now, we could simply take this scene in the Garden as an example of how we should pray for God's will, and it is, of course, an example, and it's a fine example for us to follow, but it's even an even better glimpse into the will of God. Now, this takes place on the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. As soon as he finished praying, a crowd came to arrest him. And so I included uh, the first verse from the next section uh, of the scripture, where the crowds come to arrest Jesus, because this was really the answer to Jesus' prayer. He knew that his death was at hand, and so he prayed, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me, that is, the cup of God's wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, it might trouble us a little bit to see that Jesus didn't want to die. But it really shouldn't trouble us. First, death is bad. God did not create us to die. No one should want to die. Jesus' desire to live is really quite virtuous. If there is a way to save the world that doesn't include death, Jesus should absolutely do that instead of going to the cross. But there isn't another way, and so he submits to the Father's will, which, in a mysterious way, is also his own divine will, and though he struggles with it as a man. And second, it might trouble us, um, or second... Uh, reason why it should not trouble us is that it demonstrates that Jesus was fully human, yet without sin. If death was easy for him, we would question if he really suffered for us. We see that Jesus did not use his divine power to shield himself from the agony of the cross. He endured not merely the physical pain, 
but most especially the rejection of his father, as all of God's wrath was poured out on him, and God condemned all sin in the flesh of his son. We see here that the cross is God's will. Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. And then we see a swift answer to that prayer. Immediately after he is done praying, Judas arrives to betray Jesus unto death. And that really is the answer to Jesus' prayer. When we pray, thy will be done, we're praying for many things. We are praying for justice and peace on this earth. We are praying for the devil to be hindered. We are praying for our sinful flesh to be suppressed so so that we might serve God and neighbor. But most especially, we are praying for Jesus' blood to cover our sins. This is the cornerstone of God's will. And this is how Jesus reigns over his kingdom. I would encourage you during the season of Lent to read through the Passion narrative. That's the chapters that have to do, especially with Jesus' suffering and his death. Make that part of your devotional life. And I would encourage you to do with all four of the Gospels. Read through those chapters that have to do with Jesus' suffering and death. And notice how in all four of the Gospels, as Jesus gets closer to the cross, the language of his kingship becomes more apparent really, than anywhere else in all of the Bible. The will of God is that Jesus would come into his kingdom and reign over his kingdom by his death. The purpose of Jesus' kingdom and the center of God's will is your forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. Amen.